0: Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Well, good morning, good morning, and welcome to the 3CR Gardening Show. My name is A.B. Bishop and I have to first of all say I lied to listeners last week because I thought it was the last week that I was on the show. I thought Pam was back this week but um, I saw a post on Stephen's Instagram last night and I was like, ooh, should I be worried? Is Pam still over there as well? And apparently she is. So uh, you've got me for another week. Um, welcome. Um, with me in the studio this morning are two wonderful chaps. Um, I was actually quite pleased to see them both eventually turn up because I thought, "Oh, I might be doing the show by myself. Uh, so, first of all, um, we have James Beatty from James Beatty Land, and we have Jeremy Francis from Cloud Hill. Good morning, guys. Good morning. Good morning. How is everybody?
1: I think I'm a bit more relaxed than you were this morning, that's for sure. <laughs> yes, I, wa- I was a little bit
0: frazzled, wasn't I? <laughs>
1: <laughs> you could barely notice, A.B., it was good. Yes, yes, that's, that's, I'm,
0: a bit, I'm a bit calmer now, so, um, yes, yeah, so... Um, I couldn't believe actually. The sun wasn't even up this morning when I was driving. I was quite disappointed.
1: Well, that being said, at least at least the clouds have buggered off for the time being. So yes. you know, despite the fact that it hadn't peaked its head over the horizon, it was really quite bright. You yes. know, it was I was scratching around in my back garden this morning looking for plants to bring in, and not finding many because there's not much happening. Just a whole lot of greens really in the vegetable garden. But I didn't need a torch or anything like that.
0: Um, oh, okay. Yes. So, Moon yeah. was still hanging around.
1: Oh, I'm not well, sure. Actually, was it? Because no, it's, it's I don't nearly think it was. it's
0: nearly a full moon. a Few days from a full moon. Mm, we
1: are we are gearing up to it. That's yes, for sure. I have
0: yeah. to get a few more seeds in in the next few days. I think it's
1: always a good time of year to be planting. You always notice the weeds germinating. That's when I go. All right, it's time to chuck some things around that you want to eat. Instead of that's pull
0: it right. <laughs> Stinging nettles are already on their way. <coughs> so yeah. So and how about you, Jeremy? What's what's well watching
2: in... the last of the autumn colour, I suppose. Oh and, yes, uh, yes, and uh, no, it's, it's been a. Half of the autumn Was uh, fairly quiet mm-hmm. I, I suspect um, It was another one of those Very hot dry springs well, As autumn. Autumns, I should say. Yeah. The, uh, autumn's Late summer autumn periods And uh, um, It actually did a bit of damage I think And it showed up mm-hmm. With the autumn colour So the First half of autumn In the Dandenongs Was fairly quiet But the second half On the other hand Has been brilliant mm-hmm. It's just superb And and uh, so we're just watching the last leaves drifting off the trees. Uh, the big our big liquid amber is about as good as I've ever seen it, <coughs> and uh, uh, our nico maple has just been superb. And oh, I should have checked the grisian maples. They should have been absolutely mm. in, in full autumn colour. They're almost the last trees to colour up each autumn, and they are stunning, just gorgeous. One of my mm. favourite species, yep. yeah, for, mm. for autumn colour. Yeah, brilliant colours and of course the uh, the bark is why people generally grow them and the mm. deep cinnamon glowing bark and, and, uh, and yellow and scarlet leaves over
1: this bark is quite something. Mm. I had a little seedling gifted to me by Simon Rickard when I went to visit his garden because they don't often set seed and that's one of the reasons why they're so expensive to buy in retail. Um, they just don't set a lot of viable seed at all but he had a little seedling popping up under under his tree in his backyard so he potted it up and gave it to me, and I took it home and you know put it in and put it on a table out the back and get good sun and all that kind of stuff, and and kind of it came back into leaf, and within about two days of it coming back into leaf in spring. The bloody earwigs nipped the growing tip out of it, and I was ropeable, ropeable. But aren't,
0: aren't you good? You've uh, provided a food, food source for some earwigs. Yeah, good on en- you, James.
1: Those endangered earwigs yeah. that yeah. seem to be proliferating into bloody armies in my garden in the springtime. I
0: have yeah. to say, I never see earwigs.
1: Yeah, okay. Yeah. I think they could be more of a city thing, so out where Maybe, you are, they might yeah. be less of a problem. Do you, get, do you have much of a problem with them up on the mountain, Jeremy? I or? can't say they're a problem. Okay. Uh, I see them but uh, not, not armies. Not, not them, in many no, no,
2: proportions, but, uh,
0: yeah. What, do you see them in the roses or something?
2: Um, we don't have too many roses, I suppose. And the roses we have are slightly obscure roses like rugosas and eyes <laughs> and things like that. They, don't like to, them. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, they, they, yeah. They, they go for floribundas and <laughs> tea roses, hybrid teas, I, mm. I suspect. Yeah, it's yeah, so, hmm.
0: interesting, isn't it? Because we don't... We, Never I'd a problem at yours. I have never seen one. I wonder if it's just because we've got <coughs> only natives and then the kitchen garden.
1: Mm, it could be. And look, I've got, I've got a big deck out the back of my place as well, and they love dark, cool, you know, slightly damp, which is perfect conditions in kind of early spring here yep. in Melbourne. So I reckon they've built some kind of earwig super city under the deck, <laughs> and then they go at out <coughs> <house>. <coughs> marauding in the garden yeah. in the, in the <laughs> night time. But um, look, they're, they're not a huge problem, but I've I've had to, I've had to shift from growing seedlings and transplanting them to basically direct seeding. Because if I do put just dot seedlings in my beds, then invariably they're going to come in during the night and Mm. just destroy them after Mm. I first plant them. So... I now germinate 150 broccoli in a line, <laughs> hoping that it's going to be <laughs> defence against <laughs> earwigs. Yeah, earwigs that's right. To some wow. extent, yeah. So <laughs> it's, it's the only way around it, really. It so saves yeah, a lot of frustration. Yeah,
0: it's, it is frustrating when you're trying to be an organic gardener, isn't it? Yeah,
1: it is absolutely. And look, I've tried building little traps and stuff for them, but it just nothing seems to put a dent in the population yeah. in my place. So it's something I've just had to kind of work with rather than ameliorate no really? upside yeah. down
0: orange skins or anything like that <laughs> look I,
1: I did try that i found it didn't work but i did one of the one of the most successful things i I built was a, was a little trap and it, it, it did work and i did trap a lot of them but they just kept coming and i thought well you know what's the point really mm, mm. um but it was basically just a just a chinese takeaway container buried in the ground um with a bit of oil a bit of uh Anchovy oil—they seem to go nuts for anchovy mm. oil or anything with that kind of fishy smell. Mm. So, you know, the straining off your tuna can or something like that in there as well, um, and using using that and a combination of water and a little bit of detergent to kind of get them in there and drown them and suffocate them. Mm. Um, and there were, you know, drown them and suffocate. Yeah, well, that's right. Go all out. <laughs> well, you've got to be sure. You, know, I mean, you don't want them coming back. So you don't want them pulling a Jesus on you or something. <laughs> Um, but, yeah, look, in the end, in the end, I just, I just do what I can to kind of work alongside them now instead of trying to kill them. So hopefully that's better karma for my garden as well. But yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs>
0: do they um, go for the more mature plants or it's only the real...
1: All, all, always the small, vulnerable stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Nice and juicy. Yep. Going for the small and vulnerable, just like Peter Dutton, really. He <laughs> yeah. so, kind of looks like an earwig, too. Maybe that's an insult to earwigs. It sure. is, absolutely. <laughs> you got me
0: thinking, actually. I suppose the earwigs are native. They would not really thought they, about I I'm I'm sure sure it. I'm there would be, be a, be native, a ones. I'm sure native ones, yeah.
1: yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm, not, I'm not sure the ones I've got are native ones, but they, maybe that's just wishful thinking. So, <laughs> yeah. But, you know, an Australian I do like to look after the insects and, you know, with your book coming out and that kind of stuff. It's a, it's a pretty big topic, I reckon. And
0: it is, and it's one of the first things I think we need to reassess all of us, mm-hmm. how we look at arthropods. Yeah, absolutely. Because it's so easy just to, and, and possums for that matter, it's so easy <laughs> <laughs> to get into that habit of just freaking out every time we every, see an Every time you see an insect. Yeah, yeah. yeah. without even um, taking mm. that childlike wonder and wondering what it is and mm. where it lives and we automatically assume it's, it's it up to there. no good. Yeah. Up mm-hmm. to no good in the garden yep. rather than, yeah, they really are all part of that amazing food web and chain well they underpin it they're really important as mm.
2: well yeah certainly as david ashmore is doing a thing on ants on the abc tonight which i'll be intrigued Ooh. to see and, exciting. Uh, yeah, coming from western australia the ants were the big thing there mm. which uh, we didn't i didn't realize uh oh, until i was you know, uh, farming for 15 20 years or so and i went to a seminar and and uh, on business opportunities and there was actually someone there talking about um Ants, and the fact that uh, a big percentage of the world's species of ants live in Western Australia. It's a, it's a hotspot for mm. ants. Well, Australia mm.
0: overall is a hotspot for yeah. ants. Yeah, but, 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 did, but
2: did, uh, particularly Western Australia. Yes. That, that had never occurred to me before. I, d- I was just used to the idea that every time you pick up, picked up a rock, there was another species of yeah. ant under <laughs> 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 oh, No, This is, this is uh, truth everywhere in, our, in the world. And and uh, No, he was saying that... Uh, it's uh, it's uh, it's an oddity of Western Australia, mm. and. Uh to the point that there was actually someone who was hoping to set up safari tours, uh, business opportunities, safari tours. For, of ant, the, lovers. Yeah, yeah. for ant lovers. Yeah, for ant lovers. They were sitting there thinking, yeah, yeah, that, that was an intriguing idea, but not quite the same as the Serengeti planes. <laughs> 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 they can march <laughs> uh, in single
0: file to look at the ants. Just how
2: big do these ants get in Western <laughs> Australia? <laughs> well, there was something called a sergeant's <laughs> ant, which was pretty big. You could kind of hear it coming, and it was, you know, it was about... 50 mil from one end to the other, and mm. if it caught up with you, it gave you a nasty sting, too. Right, right. Uh, one of those very primitive things. and
1: I um, guess the diversity of ants over there is related to that southwest area being yeah. a biodiversity hotspot. And, yeah. and with Apparently,
2: the climate has been absolutely stable for the last 50, 60, 70 million years. Yeah. Uh, Australia's been drifting north at the same rate as the world's been cooling. Mm. Just ignore the last 50 years, but uh, previous to that, the world's been cooling at exactly the same rate as uh, Australia's been drifting north mm. and hence the Australian climate has been incredibly stable mm. and that's allowed this, inc- this amazing Huge biodiversity to build up mm. and, and especially with ants.
0: Yeah, and Queensland as well have got a um, really high ant population and, okay. and, and ant diversity and I was, I was talking to... Um, was in contact with uh, Ben Hoffman, who's the principal research scientist at CRO in uh, Darwin, and, um, and he, he was saying they've got uh, seven thousand, or Australia's got seven thousand named species, and they've, they've got them <laughs> at so Sarah Darwin. But he reckons it could be no, no to, one's ever looked Up hey. to ten thousand species. Oh, yeah wow. double that. Those probably. Yeah, mm. and, and yeah. that's the thing. That's I mean, people say, oh, well, how come we don't know how many moth species there are? But if you think of how tricky it is is to find mm. them and you know some moths are only told apart by particular scales on their wings or something like yeah, that yeah. so it's, really close. yeah, it's really tricky yep. with, with insects especially I suppose to tell the difference apart but yeah I mean they're so ants we just think of them oh damn they're annoying they're digging up the paving they're putting sand everywhere <laughs>
1: yeah they, um, look I've never had that reaction of oh bloody ants I want to get rid of them but yeah. I've had a couple of clients in the last six months oh there's, there's ants in my yeah. garden and yeah. I'd go well I never awesome. really <laughs> there are ants in your garden yeah. how about that <laughs> they, I mean,
0: they create little tunnels, little uh, air pockets, yep, and then yeah. where water can flow through. They take seeds down into the ground and Very help them useful. germinate. They're extremely useful. And yeah, so yeah, they, they're
2: native. yeah, they're just turning the soil the whole time. Absolutely, yeah. Absolutely. yeah. Most, prob- most probably ants do uh, are to Australian soils what earthworms were to the soils of Kent mm. when Darwin was doing his work, uh, what
1: 150 years ago. Mm. And a lot of our plants have evolved to, you know, work with ants as well. So a lot of acacia exactly. species get that little fatty appendage, that little elaiosome, on the end of their seed, which ants find attractive, which makes them take it back to their, their little burrow. Or their yep. little, what, are they, what are they called? An ant? Burrow. Yeah. An They're ant burrow? Yeah. <laughs> um, an underground city or something? Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> Um, so then they take that and they, they you know consume the fatty appendage and then they'll go and dump it somewhere outside the burrow a couple le- of weeks le- later. The, yeah, so a good, right. good seed dispersal mechanism happening there. And the and
0: yeah. copper butterfly, one thing I didn't realise, they've got a really close association with a particular sort of ant. So mm. we know that they live on the Biseria spinosa mm-hmm. and um, the ants take the larvae of the and copper butterfly from their underground burrows and they... Um, take them up into the plant during the day and protect them while they're munching, and then they take them back down. Oh into wow. they <laughs> yeah.
2: yeah, have little craches. Yeah, That's is,
0: incredible. That incredible? <laughs> 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 is that not incredible? <laughs> wow, that just blows your mind. Yeah. yeah. So and yeah. How,
1: you know the Eltham copper butterflies are endangered? So how are the is. ant species doing that look after it? Are they also in I trouble? No, yeah. yeah. okay.
0: Yeah, yeah. I'm not, I don't know about that one. That's a good question, James. Uh, mm. uh,
1: it's, it's absolutely intriguing,
2: isn't it? This this um, interlocking mm. mesh of species. Oh. That Coming to grips with it—it's going to keep people busy for the next umpteen generations. Absolutely, yeah. We're just very, very gently brushing the surface Mm. at the moment. I think so. There's so
0: many relationships that we don't know about. Mm. That's what I think. I mean, Uh, even you know, especially underground, we're learning more and more about you know how fungi connects plants mm. with other plants and as part of their communication network and. Yeah, it's uh, quite incredible. One of the uh, photographers for the book, for my book, sent in this incredible photo of a. Um, oh, I'm just trying to think what it, what sort of bug it was. A shield bug, that's right. Mm-hmm. It was a this gorgeous shield bug. <laughs> And um, surrounded by ants, and at first all, you think, "Oh, they, is it attacking them?" But it's actually protecting it and um, taking their 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 excreta, basically, which is the the frass, the honeydew mm. uh, that they leave behind because that's so high in carbohydrates. Mm. So these ants protect these uh, bugs um, so that they can get their poop.
2: It's amazing. Isn't it? Yeah, honeydew we, we We moved house uh, a few weeks back uh, <coughs> to a to a house tucked in against the the tourist road the, the, uh, running through the Danongs uh, underneath a row of sycamores <laughs> which are not the, not the, not trees that we should welcome into australia <laughs> especially as uh, the first thing we notice is that we, uh, typical dandongs, we only have one parking spot in front of our house, and and, uh, and that parking spot is direct line of fire of the honeydew that drips down yeah. from the aphids feeding on the sycamores, mm. and I, I, I could not believe it, but uh, 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 the rate at which this this honeydew is produced, you can actually stand there on a fine autumn day, and, and with the sun shining, and, and watch this dew drifting down through the air, oh little gross. droplets of it, <laughs> and it settles over our old Commodore at such a rate that <laughs> it only has to be sitting there for 20 minutes, and the windscreen is smeared with this oh. stuff. And it's not easy to get off, really, is it? Well, it will come off, but, but the rate at which it builds up is just... Astonishing. Mm.
0: Did you get your house cheap? <laughs> <laughs> is, that, is that why? Well, well. Uh,
2: now you mention it, yes, it was. It was a, it's a fairly old uh, a typical Hills. Um, it's like living in a Miss Marple set, actually. <laughs> <laughs> no murders, and, hopefully. Yeah, and, and uh, well, no, no murders so far, and uh, but... Uh, uh, but it was quite cheap, and, and partly because, um like all Miss Marple says, if you lean against one of the walls, they can't <laughs> fall over. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but it's full of, uh, uh lead light windows and mm, that sort of thing, beautiful. so, so it's quite incredible, but, uh, you need more but it does, and you're sycamore, huh? yeah, <laughs> yeah, but it does just yeah. have the one parking spot out the front, and then line of fire of all this honeydew. And and just watching this, I, 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 you, you tend to forget the uh, gee how prolific, how, how active nature is. Mm-hmm. And, uh, this is not meant to be there anyway, is it? Mm-hmm. <laughs> sycamores mm. and the aphids in sycamores, but by golly, the, the aphids have taken advantage of these sycamores.
0: Mm. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? And and of course, with the honeydew comes uh, a lot of the. Fungal issues that we have, mm. the sooty mould and things like yeah. that, and mm. yeah. yeah,
2: which is why these these trees are covered in, uh, in sooty mould. Uh, you know, they're, they're one of the ugliest trees on earth because. Mm. <laughs> so, <laughs> what, will you leave it
0: or? Well,
2: um, unfortunately, the the it's uh, a it's a very old, fairly dense row of sycamores that lines the road and forms a barrier between us and <laughs> the tourist mm. road, and so they're. they're of important that they stay so mm-hmm. in, in, um, it's quite a big property and, it's, and it runs down into the Parents Creek and there's a, there's a big project to remove weeds from the Parents Creek and so the sycamores from the rest of the property will go um, and uh, so that includes quite a few properties and that, mm. that's part of the uh, oh, a project that the Western Port Authority is um, running through the hills um, so that's all well and good. Is and that all part of cleaning up waterways? Yes, exactly. Yeah. But, uh, the Perrins Creek runs down into the, uh, uh, um, yeah, which, one well, of the whole series of streams running out the Dan Longs, but it, it's one of the more important streams. Yeah. And it's uh, the, the um, uh, it's full of, um, yeah, if I can remember what it is, Ostrogameris uh, australis. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, little. Arthropod, which only occurs in streams at the top of the land underneath tree ferns, uh, with about, how does it work? I think it's three-quarters shade and, and and one-quarter sunlight coming <laughs> oh, through. Oh, wonderful. And so, so you, you add up all these streams, and most probably you've got a few hundred metres worth of streams, with one species of arthropod mm. <laughs> in that habitat. And it doesn't live anywhere else on earth, as far as we can figure out. So the streams are important.
0: Yes, yes. Mm. Um, well, you are listening to the 3CR Gardening Show. I'm A.B. <laughs> Bishop. Uh, with me in the studio are uh, Jeremy We might get around Francis. to gardening at some point. We, we <laughs> might. And uh, James Beattie. And I should... There's only... Um, a couple of uh, announcements today. I suppose the first one is a, one that I read out last week but I, I will take the time to read it again and this is the Department of Health and Human Services Poison Mushroom Warning for Victorians. Um, it sounds all a bit sombre which I suppose it is if you, uh, if you eat one. Um, <laughs> uh, so Victoria's Chief Health Officer Professor Charles Guest has warned that autumn conditions have created ideal growing conditions for poisonous mushrooms. Uh, avoid gathering mushrooms around melbourne i suppose if you don't know what they look like um in rural victoria and in your own gardens poisonous varieties may appear similar to edible varieties of most importance is the um two of the state's most dangerous varieties the death cap fungus and the yellow staining mushroom and anyone who gets ill after eating mushrooms should seek urgent medical advice
1: they must issue that warning every year, surely. Yeah, yeah? I, I would imagine so, oh.
0: yeah. I, I haven't seen it before, but I'm sure they would. I mm. do remember hearing around this time that, uh, yeah, don't eat yellow mushrooms. Yeah, yeah. So, um,
1: It's not a good uh, idea unless you know what you're doing. Yes,
2: yeah. you need to know exactly. Mm. <laughs> you, need to, you need to have a <laughs> guidebook. You really need to have an expert uh, mm. by your elbows. You're collecting mushrooms. Absolutely, um, yeah. There's yeah. A, um, unfortunately, there's, there are several edible ones uh, which are mimicked by poisonous ones. Mm. Oh, and, really? Oh, yeah. And uh, Well, just coincidentally, really. Yeah. And um, um, so it does make life very tricky. Mm.
0: Now, another um, announcement is that uh, today is actually Botanic Gardens Day. And uh, there's a um, a host of um, botanic gardens, Mm -hmm. um, including the Melton Botanic Garden and uh, uh, RBG Victoria, um, hosting various functions. Uh, The one I have in front of me is the... um, one at the Cranbourne Gardens, uh, which is to come down and learn about the vital role of botanic gardens play in conserving Australian flora and fauna. And uh, ecologist uh, Dr Terry Coates will be uh, taking a walk through the bushland uh, of the Australia um, or of the botanic gardens down there um, and uh, explaining how he helps protect the endangered southern brown bandicoot. And um, But, yeah, there's a, a lot of uh, uh, work and, and um, things going on at uh, various botanic gardens around the country and around Melbourne today, so um, worth hopping online and, and just seeing what's going on. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, botanic gardens are, are really being recognised, I suppose, and taking more, much more of an active approach in um, tackling our biggest environmental challenges, I suppose, mm. aren't they? Mm. They're really, you know, and, and, and they're not just seen these <laughs> days as a, a place to go and um, have, a, have a look at nice plants. Mm. In, in much of the same way that uh, our zoos are taking a much more... Um, proactive role, I suppose, in in um, preserving species and um, yeah, just um, protecting us from the future in a way, I suppose. Mm, mm.
2: Yeah, just adding to that, uh, the newest botanic gardens in Victoria is the the Alinda Botanic Gardens, mm. and. Um, now, that was the National Rhododendron Gardens, and the Rhododendrons will still oh, be there. Yes, yes. <laughs> uh, but the, the gardens have been extended a little bit um, from a little while back, and the name has been changed. And um, with the idea that much more work will be done in those gardens to... Um, <clears throat> conserve some of the alpines, some of the uh, endangered alpines from various parts of the high country of Victoria. Mm-hmm. Oh, right. And um, that that was, uh, there were photographs of our local member in the, in the uh, local newspaper just a few days ago, uh, busily with his spade, with his stainless steel spade, <laughs> planting, doing a bit of work in the... Um, in the Olinda Botanic Gardens mm. um, um, with with this this theme in mind
0: and, and so have they given over, because I know that garden is quite extensive, have yeah. they given over some... It's a some, big garden. Yeah, have they, are they reshaping areas?
2: They, um, yeah, there will be an area, a part of the old golf course will be, uh, has been incorporated into the, uh, uh, into what's now the Alinda Botanic Gardens, mm-hmm. and that, and so it's a long-term project really, but this, uh, there were areas in the, uh, in the, uh, in the original gardens which were, um, available for planting And so work has commenced in that, those areas already It is a big garden it's a, in, in acres it's, it's close to 100 acres altogether mm-hmm. So it's a big, big property By the standards of the hills And by any standards um, good collection of Rhododendrons, of course. Mm-hmm. Uh,
0: they've got ro- uh, proteas there as well, don't they? Well, yeah, oh yeah. They, they've always had
2: other plants, and yeah. the, and of course a fairly good collection of um, cool climate trees, uh, mainly exotics. Um, uh, the, the the eucalyptus regnans, of course, in the in the stream gully there, uh, the fern gully, um, but the the um, The old exotic trees. So, for anyone interested in trees from around the world, Mm. uh, it's a good place to walk around, and especially at the moment with the, as I said, the last of the autumn colour. Mm. Yeah,
0: interesting. And so, James, now you've been in warmer climates. You're sitting here in front of me, all rugged up. But you have (laughs) been. I've been following your Instagram posts, and you've been in uh, shorts and singlet.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I was in Thailand for about a week. on holiday with some friends, um, and certainly much warmer here. We left at the start of that week, um, where it just got really wintry all of a sudden. Mm-hmm. So it was kind of good timing Perfect to go away. Yeah, yeah, really, really good. Um, but uh, didn't have a lot of time to go around and look at gardens while we were there. And it seems that the Thais don't have a huge, um, they don't have a huge history of horticulture. Um, and you know, while while they can appreciate a garden and that kind of stuff, there hasn't been there hasn't been such a I don't know such an adoption of gardening as a pastime here, and I think I think that's got a lot to do with the fact that despite the despite the fact that you know all the other countries in Southeast Asia around them were colonised by foreign forces at some point in the last hundred two hundred years, um, Thailand always remained independent and and mm. always you know fiercely fiercely defending of their of their culture. Um, and while their borders have waxed and waned and things over the years, they've always they've always maintained their independence. They were mm. never colonized by any by any foreign occupation. And I think a lot of those foreign occupying forces often brought gardening as a of thing course. with them, especially yeah. the English and things like that. So um,
2: I struggle to think of any other country on earth mm, uh, didn't, no, that that uh, preserved its independence mm, through mm, that
1: that colonial mm, period, mm, mm, apart from Thailand, especially in Southeast Asia. Yeah. 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 It's, a it's, a, it's always a surprising fact whenever mm. I bring it up with people. Yeah. Like, oh, really? Oh, yeah, mm. Okay, yeah. Isn't that, isn't that interesting? Uh, Japan. Yeah, <laughs> Japan as Japan well. Japan and Thailand.
2: That's mm. about it.
0: Mm. But then you look at Japan and they, yeah. they've got an incredible uh, gardening culture, don't they? Mm. So yeah. I wonder wonder what's happening in Thailand. Uh, uh, yeah.
2: you, you kind of suspect that Thais are not going to be far behind Singapore, though, because uh, Singapore is, the, the, the uh, uh, gardening in Singapore has just exploded yeah, in the last... Generation, I suppose. Mm. It's suddenly one of the great horticultural places to visit, Mm. Uh, but it wasn't uh, (laughs) not too long ago. Mm. uh, So, uh, tropical gardening is, uh, well, I suppose you go back to Berlin Marx in in, um, Brazil, Uh, Mm. the the great exponent of uh, tropical plants uh, from what the 19. Fifties, the nineteen eighties. I guess he was active and his extraordinary gardens in Brasilia and and, and such places. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, so he was the uh, standard bearer and the, and the. Um, people in Singapore, and surely the big people in Thailand fairly shortly. Mm.
0: Mm. Well, I think Singapore, in a sense, are leading the world uh, for their vertical gardens and, and yeah, rooftop absolutely. gardens, mm. aren't they? I mean, but I suppose you, they plant something there and, you know, within a month you've got an entire vertical well, garden. Then, yeah. <laughs> Every time I go to the tropics, I
1: always think that. I just I just it's think insane, the, the growth rate that you yep. get off of your vegetation here is remarkable, yep. you know, and, and you yeah. know, for, for there to be... Kind of a lack of a gardening culture. I think it's maybe a lot to do with the centralized populations. We stayed in the city areas when we were over in Thailand, and and the one garden we did go and visit, um, you know, we we kind of looked it up the day before and thought, oh, it's pretty easy for us to get there. We can get a car there, and and I think it was called Nong Nooch Garden or something like mm-hmm. that, and and all the all the paraphernalia that we saw um, about it before we went. It seemed that they had a really good collection of plants. They had, a, they had a tropical version of a French parterre garden, and I thought, oh, this could be quite interesting. But not one piece of promotional material that we read mentioned the fact that there were these concrete animals dotted throughout the oh entire garden. And my I saw those posts. And, and I'm, talking, I'm talking, it's like a veritable Noah's Ark, except they've got two dozen of every animal. And, and they, they, it was really, it totally ruined it for me. Completely (laughs) ruined it. But that being said, they had a fabulous collection of plants but just this weird... I felt like i dropped acid and gone to visit a garden. It was, like, it was like nothing I'd ever seen. But I could not believe that, despite the fact that we did do quite a bit of research the day before, not one bit of it mentioned that there was this... It was, like, it was like a garden built by Clive Palmer. They even had a valley of the dinosaurs where they had proper-sized concrete dinosaurs. And I just thought, what's going on here? You know, that's this. Maybe they're embarrassed by it. If, if the animals weren't there, it would be a beautiful garden. Yeah. And it is a beautiful garden, but the animals certainly ruin it to a large extent. Mm. Well, for mm. me, for me, they did anyway. Yeah. Um, and, and it was, it was a very strange place mm. um, to, to visit, despite the fact that the, the collection of, of plants was really quite, really quite impressive. Um, mm. You know, they were growing stuff well outside of its comfort zone and, doing re, you know going really well at it as yeah, well yeah. so um but what about
0: uh, uh, agriculture and their own veggie gardens is that big over there
1: you no know, not not that I saw we didn't spend much time driving through the countryside to mm-hmm. be honest mm-hmm. um but uh yeah i th- i thought i thought i'd at least see a bit of you know a bit more cultivation in pots and that kind of stuff while i was over there but there was a yeah it, it's like the discipline of horticulture is almost you know I don't know pass them by, especially like I said, we were mainly in the city areas, so so you know not a lot of opportunity for people to be doing that stuff, I guess, but mm. um yeah, certainly not as certainly not as in your face gardening culture as somewhere like the u k or yeah. you know even even in Europe in Spain, and that kind of stuff, you know there's a long tradition of of that kind of stuff, but it just it didn't. Didn't seem to be in Thailand, mm. yeah. It
0: almost seems like it's wasted, doesn't it? Mm. Yeah.
1: And like we were saying, the, with the climate that they've got, it's the amount of stuff that you can grow. Got. anything. Phenomenal, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah absolutely. Yeah. But, um,
2: yeah, going back to Singapore, the, the most extraordinary uh, presentation at Warwick Forge's um, <laughs> big Garden international garden design conference uh, from a few weeks ago in Melbourne um, was well, a garden in Singapore uh, and it was actually been designed by uh, Catherine Goodstaff, mm-hmm. um, an American designer, but uh, oh, it was sort of a, um, the, the, the most extraordinary. How would you describe it? It was a, a garden uh, within a building, mm-hmm. uh, and the building colossal, and, and forming an atrium which is on an enormous scale, and the whole thing devoted to this. Um, this three-dimensional landscape uh, going up many, many stories high and and uh, very intricate and and um, and now something like this could be completely over the top, but um, um, uh, the designer had had, had created a, uh, a landscape in keeping with the, the space. It was, it was it's a project. Uh, um, ongoing project at the moment apparently mm-hmm. that will be complete over the next two or three years but uh, gee, Singapore is a place to watch mm. Mm. And, uh, and, and working on a scale that we just cannot imagine
0: Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely and, and speaking of that, have either of you been to the name eludes me now, that massive glass house in, in Kent I think it is in England um, um, with have
2: oh, the Eden Project, the Eden yeah, the Eden Project, Project yeah, uh, in Cornwall, anywhere? isn't Cornwall, is it? Cornwall, yeah, 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 the, yeah. Other <laughs> the other corner,
1: the other corner. Have you been there, Jeremy? <laughs> no, uh, um, yeah, next time I next should time. go. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> yeah, I've, always, yeah I've never been there either, but yeah. my other half has. He oh, went. Okay, he went on yeah. a trip to the UK a couple of years ago, yeah. and um. He went and, and loved it, yeah, but not yeah. kind of horticulturally inclined. So all the yeah, technical yeah. questions I was asking him, he's just going, I don't know, it was really beautiful. It was great. <laughs> <laughs> it was England and war. <laughs>
0: well, it is uh, time to invite listeners to join us. You're listening to 3CR Gardening Show. I'm A.B. Bishop and with me in the studio are Jeremy Francis from Cloud Hill and James Beattie. Uh, the line to uh, call, uh, to join us on air is 9419 9419- Zero one double five, or you could uh, call Rosemary on um, the outside line, and she's um, prepared to answer some of your gardening questions off air, and her number is nine four one nine eight three double seven. So we'd love to hear from you if you've got a gardening question or comment. Now, Jeremy, you have brought in um, something that you um, wanted
2: yeah, to Yeah, well, well, there's a couple of things. Yeah. Oh, one thing I'll just mention is I, uh, the the um, the um, Tom Piper documentary on Pete um, Hulda's uh, um, gardens, I, I think, it's still showing. Is it? I think uh, it was meant to be just one weekend, but the the response was so overwhelming that they decided that, uh, the Lido Group of Cinemas decided to keep keep it running. Um, and this is a, now anyway. Anyone interested in in uh, <laughs> Uh, what Contemporary landscaping, working with plants, uh, the, 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 the perennial plants and uh, anyone knowing of Pete Waldorf's work uh, in the High Line of New York, for instance mm. and throughout a lot of English gardens um, um, Valerie and I actually had the chance to go to his garden in Holland uh, mm. a few years back and we were there in in July, so quite early in the season um is that open to the public at various no no were it, it were, you was you where, where we I, I had a gig with the tour group mm-hmm. so I was, I was pretending to be the expert garden guide and <laughs> <That's> <laughs> <brilliant>. <laughs> well, at least i could talk about the plants <laughs> and the, uh, except that the the, the planting uh, in this own garden is just overwhelming mm-hmm. and and uh, uh, uh the, the only sad thing about it was the first day of the tour and we started off with the one of the finest gardens in Europe. The first day of the tour, and everything was a bit of a picture. <laughs> early. Yeah, yeah. We should have finished it with that garden. Oh, <laughs> it's just glorious. Tom Piper has uh, spent several years putting together this extraordinary documentary. And Tom Piper's a New Yorker, uh, and he generally uh, he does documentaries on artworks and the careers of people. And he decided to follow Pete Huldoff's work. And, um, and, and put a huge effort into this amazing documentary, which runs for about 85 minutes or so. Mm-hmm. Um and uh and, and just uh, some intre- uh, just a keen horticulturist sort of picked this up on the, um, the internet and got in touch with Tom and managed to get a copy of this and managed to persuade the leader group of us to put it on i mean this is i 've never heard of anyone doing <laughs> something like this before and and um, they they ran it a couple of weekends ago, and I went along to the first screening which well they were saying they, well dare I say it was it was actually the the world premiere, uh, it mm. hasn't even been shown in New York yet. Uh, we're not allowed to call it that. We've got to call it a sneak preview. <laughs> so, scrub that. <laughs> a uh, it's a sneak preview, <laughs> not a world premiere. Well, <laughs> it hadn't been shown before. And, uh, it was on at the cameo Belgrave and, 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 uh, other Lido uh, cinemas in, in Melbourne and one or two country cinemas in Ballarat and Benico, I think. Mm. And, um, I, it's the first time I've seen one of the, 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 the main theatre at, at the uh, cameo absolutely full to the point there were people sitting mm-hmm. on the steps. Oh, wow. <laughs> the response was overwhelming. Take that Star Wars. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and uh, <laughs> so they, they're running it on Saturdays and Sundays. So something, if uh, anyone interested in, in um, contemporary uh, landscaping, mm-hmm. uh, just, just check with these cinemas and it, it should be running, I think, for another week or two, but just on Saturdays and Sundays, four o'clock. Now the other thing is that uh, my wife actually uh, Valerie has been part of a group uh, putting together the secret Dan Long, uh, uh, see, uh, secret gardens of the Dan Long Rangers uh, uh, tours over the last few years, and um, so uh, not so uh, secret
0: anymore.
2: Not so secret, although <laughs> the gardens themselves, many of them. Uh, gardens which no one had seen before and, and the the Dan Nongs and the Yarra Valley are just full of uh, people who have made it their life's passion to settle on a block and, yeah. and pour yeah. hours every week into <coughs> their gardens and so
1: there's and a they would lot be, of them. They would be gardeners' gardens as well Absolutely and they are always yes. infinitely more... Interesting, so than, you know. I'm not. I don't want to sound disparaging or anything like that. But when you go on a lot of garden tours, it's people with lots of money, but not necessarily an interest in gardening. Whereas mm. these gardens yep. sound like people with well, an interest and in and post- gardening. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and
2: absolutely right. <laughs> and so there's there, there are one or two um, uh, landscapers involved with these tours, but generally they are just private individuals mm. with a passion. Mm. Um, and um, um, sometimes a bit of wherewithal as well. Um, and the principle of the tours is that uh, the, 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 uh, it's a chance to actually meet people. There's the people, uh, you buy a ticket and join a uh, group who climb onto a little coach, a 25-seater coach. And so that's an ideal way of getting around Dandong's uh, those narrow, difficult to, to figure out where you are roads. Yeah. And and, um, um, and so everyone arrives at a group, and that's a chance for the the maker of the garden to meet the group and actually show the group around. So it's it's meeting the gardeners in their gardens, and um, so it's all quite organised. Uh, people. And meet at Kawara, mm-hmm. so the native gardens mm-hmm. at, at Kalaramra. And, um, and from there they um, travel around to three, four um, gardens. There's one or two growing nurseries. There's one or two flower growers. There's, there's, there's also even workshops. So mm-hmm. there's a whole series of of um, of, um uh, elements to these these programs, and they're run over uh, several uh, days, uh, over a two-week period in October. Now, of course, there's a, there's a website, so just Google Secret Gardens of Dandongs, mm-hmm. and there's a the whole program laid out in front of you, and you can go through and, and select uh, from the program. Um, there are a few people, most probably will try and do something every day, because every day is different. But, for instance, uh, just a, a brief example of, of the things that they are doing, um, Philip Johnson is included. So the um, Philip Johnson and his sustainable um, Billabong Gardens, I suppose, mm-hmm. which, uh, rock gardens on the giant scale. Uh, Bickley <coughs> Vale, mm-hmm. now that's the old uh, village at Murrellbark, uh, designed and virtually built stone by stone by uh, Edna Walling. Mm-hmm. And um, so there's a chance to see several of the gardens at Bickley Vale. Uh, Ust Barker uh, Monbog. Now he's Mm -hmm. uh, one of the Dutch flower growing uh, uh, flower growers, and um, he um, uh, his his career crosses both from growing flowers to designing very avant-garde vertical gardens. Mm. And uh, his own garden is quite extraordinary. So, um, I, I think this is the only way you can get onto, get into his garden, mm, yeah. join the tour, and and uh, come along. Uh, there's an underground house. where anyway, this goes on and on. There's an underground house at Alinda, with a, with a vegetable garden growing on the roof, and spread out over an acre or so. The the, the entire garden, but uh, the the house is underground, and and. Um, I have not seen it. I, I think there's, there's more than one that un- underground house in longest no? but uh, mm. this one is, uh, you, you kind of imagine something like a hobbit's house, but yeah, I think I it's do, not yeah. quite like a hobbit's <laughs> house. <laughs> 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 and uh, the at um, Calista, which is... Uh, now this is quite a new project, but over 15 hectares. And as I was saying, people who just pour their lives into their their passion. There are 15 hectares, a garden of 15 hectares. I I don't think it covers the entire 15 hectares yet, but mm. it's a work in progress. But th- yet, this yeah, is, this is something yeah. <laughs> on a serious scale. Mm. Um, so it's um, to, well, it's half the. 15 hectares but it was more than half the size of the Royal Botanic Gardens mm. and this is just one individual oh, wow that's, <laughs> I, that blows my mind I
0: struggled with the veggie pad
2: <laughs> <laughs> anyway it's all on the website so uh, if anyone's interested they just jump on to Secret Gardens of, of the Dandenong Rangers and there it is mm. and
0: Valerie organises all of it. yeah thing. so yeah.
2: yes Valerie and, and a, a little dedicated team of Charging through and spending Weeks every year on this Yeah mm. <laughs> <laughs> it's,
0: it's thanks to people like her and, and other volunteers isn't it That we really get to see so many amazing gardens That's right so yeah, Terrific, well I suppose we should start going to Oh our callers have disappeared So um, no um, We will continue talking Emma has good. disappeared <laughs> em, Emma didn't want to talk about gardens anymore so, um, yes, yeah, so, okay, and um, James, what have um, you been up to? You brought in uh, something. I br- Look,
1: I brought in one plant. I was saying I was out the back kind of looking through the, looking through the back garden as the sun was coming up this morning, and I've, just, I've got a lot of quite small leafy green stuff coming up at the moment kind of waiting for it to come on in winter. Um, but I, I grew this plant last year and let a couple go to seed, and it's become a really, really useful weed, one of those kind of self-seeding mm. weedy edibles. Yep. Um, and it's got a bit of a it's got a bit of an interesting um a bit of an interesting uh well it's the difference in popularity out here is it doesn't seem to be very commonly grown mm-hmm. because it does literally only get about that big it's yeah. corn salad or val- valerianella lacusta um and it's a it's a tiny little green. It looks like a little bunch of lettuce or something Ooh, like bok choy that.
0: Looks like a tiny, it does tiny look bok like choy. a little tiny
1: bok choy. Um, but it doesn't get much bigger than that. Mm-hmm. Um, and you generally harvest the whole plant when you go to eat it. Yeah. Um, so, so that's what, about
0: 10, 12 centimetres? Yeah, I reckon. Yeah, yeah. I
1: reckon that's about right. Um, but the leaves on it are really substantial. They're quite toothsome and mm-hmm. they've got a bit of a nutty flavour to them as well. Mm-hmm. Really popular in countries like Spain and things where you would chuck a bit of tuna in a salad and just give it a light dressing. more about celebrating the vegetable itself than it yep. is about you know what what other things are in the salad um but really really easy to grow um and if you sowed from oh, let's say kind of middle of march to april may mm-hmm. if you sowed every couple of weeks you would get a constant winter crop of it um it is it is really really good to grow best direct seeded as well yep. um doesn't tend to transplant very well, and to and to get a good feed off them, you need a lot of them. Yeah. So it's not the kind of thing that you're going to buy a punnet of six of and put in and then get something substantial out of it. Yeah. Um, but great plant. Um, I've got it as a little um, as a little kind of weedy crop underneath my broccoli, which is just starting to get above it. So I'll be. Um, I'll be kind of snapping the bottom leaves off my broccoli to give these a little bit more sun and yeah. hope that they come on a little bit more. Yeah. Um, but yeah, delicious and and a bit of a relatively new one for me. It's only been a couple of years that I've been growing it, but I've been very impressed with very it. Happy. Yeah. And
0: have you got it in in just the one bed like the broccoli bed, or is it? Yeah. Self-sown. But everywhere? I'd,
1: I'd like to self-sow it everywhere. It it comes up. You know, like um like the oh, I'm going to have a mental blank now. Um. Well,
0: What's the name of that one again?
1: Uh, Valerianella locusta. Oh, um, and what's the of name? And corn, name? corn, salad, corn or, salad, or marche is another one. M A C H. Yeah. And
0: can you cook it? Cook it as well? Like, can you chop it and stir fries at the end? Or I've or never. One, I, I, hold you,
1: I think you absolutely could. Yeah. Um, I really like the raw flavor of it, so yeah. I basically just pick it and dress it and yeah. eat it. Um, but you could definitely cook it and it would and it would wilt and it, but it wouldn't because because the leaves on it are really quite they they do have a bit of robustness about them mm. um, i think you could cook them and they're not going to disintegrate into nothing or green slime or anything like that yep. in the pan Light yeah, lettuce. yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. And,
0: and seeds are i suppose available at uh, yeah you know, i think
1: i think i got mine from southern harvest or something yep, like that yep. but there are so a couple of others there. yeah yeah, yeah. Yep.
0: Yep. all yep. right yep. well um, we should uh, go back to emma hi emma Oh, hello.
3: I'm following on from your earlier discussion regarding um, termicides and insecticides. Oh, yes. Um, I actually live in a village, and uh, while I was away, they sprayed the garden with, uh, I won't mention the trade name, but it was ultra-low odour. I queried them, uh, and they just said, oh, well, it was organic. We only use organic sprays. And I I sent away and I've got seven pages from the um, insecticide people. But, um, yeah, I suppose I'm angry about it mm. and um, I'd like to find out more about the product so I can go look into it further.
1: What was the name of the product again or what was the active constituent in? I couldn't.
3: Oh, it's called Ultra Low Odour I've got seven pages so I don't quite know which question to answer
1: Right,
0: And that's um, obviously marketing material from the company is it? Yeah
3: this is from the company who did it, yeah, it
0: Okay, okay. Mm. Um, yeah. no, I'm not so sure I just want to
3: be. know what can I do next to find out more because I don't want that to happen again I've got nothing in my garden that's alive no ants,
0: no anything mm, That sounds terrifying mm. Mm. Mm.
2: It's it's, it's, a, it's a problem with Calling a spray organic Isn't it yeah. uh, Any insecticide is, uh, uh, there are Plenty of organic Insecticides Are or uh, well, highly toxic
3: The, yeah, the manager um, When I queried Them about it They said it was We only use organic but I wasn't happy with, yeah, that. A, <laughs> So a, I got this
2: spread of seven pages. Yeah, organic is a a, it's a word that camouflages a lot of sins. I feel. Exactly. Mm-hmm. I, I, mean, mm-hmm. the, I, I, I there was yeah. an incident in in Western Australia some years ago. Someone uh, using a mixing up their own organic spray tobacco, mm-hmm. and they. Mm-hmm. They killed themselves. They, they actually they ended up with a, with a brew which was so toxic that they died. Oh my goodness! Yes. Yeah, and I mean that that's perfectly possible. So it's, organic yes. almost means nothing.
3: So I just want to know what's my next step to look into this and make sure it doesn't happen again.
1: Um, look, if you really wanted to. Get a bit of background on what the product is. I'd contact the APVMA because they're the ones oh, that, that so regulate small
3: slowly. <laughs> they
1: It's the, the, the APVMA.
3: APVMA.
1: Yep. Australian Pesticides and Veterinary Medicine Association. Okay. Um, and they're all they're online and things like that. You'll be able to find out. Um, they don't
3: have a phone. Where we would I find a phone number? I'm not very really
1: good online. Oh, okay. Um, that's,
0: that's, that's, yeah, that's <laughs> tricky because online you can also get what they call the. Um, Material safety data sheet, and that gives you the background to any chemical that's out there. They have to supply all the information as to what it can kill and how quickly it can kill, and um, all those sorts of things. And how toxic it is to people. Who can work those sorts of Yeah, yeah. yeah. So Emma, just out of interest, what were you um, spraying?
3: Well, I wasn't here. It was. I live in a village. Yep. And even though I said I didn't want my garden sprayed. I wasn't here, and it was spraying. Christ. Yeah, so it's yeah. the contract yeah. team that did yeah. <laughs> the spraying. Yeah, and
1: yeah. 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 But, but I've, I've been doing a little bit of research since we've gotten on the phone here, and I've, I think it's bifenthrin, which is a, it looks like a um, synthetic pyrethroid, so that would be why they were perhaps saying that it was organic. Um, but, you know, even organic things can... Uh, can exactly, yeah. And, they still
3: kill my yeah. little people in the
1: garden. And pyrethroids mm-hmm. can be very... Um, can be very toxic to mm. aquatic life as well. So you know, it's it's, a, it's, a, it's a natural toxin. Mm. Uh, toxin, but that that but it's
2: still a toxin. Mm. Yeah, uh, th- yeah. the world is full of natural toxins.
3: Yeah. Mm. <laughs> but my garden's been drenched in it. Yeah. that's yeah. really sad. Yeah,
2: this is something. Mm. Yeah. Well.
3: All right. Well, I'll um, get somebody else to to help me with that um, website and um, go from there. Thank you for your help. Oh, no
0: worries. You're, you're welcome, Emma. Bye, <laughs> Bye for now. Bye-bye. All right. And uh, let's go to uh, Olive in Frankston. Hi, Olive. <coughs> no, Olive has disappeared. Um, okay. So, yeah, I mean, that is a, a, a bit of a conundrum, mm. really, isn't it? Mm. it? And especially if, I mean, Emma wasn't in control of the spraying herself. Mm. That, that is really heartbreaking. But I think it's
1: really indicative of a lot of people's... Confusion around, you know, organic versus synthetic, um, especially when it comes to pesticide mm, use. Mm. Um, I spoke to a gardener about 12 months ago who, who just kind of mentioned casually in passing conversation that, um, that, uh, um, one of the neonicotinoids was organic, and I went, what, no? <laughs> no, it's absolutely not. You know, mentioning Comfidor or in the same breath as organics and thinking that it's an organic spray, and I'm going, no, no. And and I explained in a lot of detail, you know, why it was a particularly bad one and why you probably shouldn't be using it and, you know, what the alternatives were. Um, yeah. But he he swore black and blue for the first five or ten minutes that it was an organic it was an organic spray, mm-hmm. um, and nothing could be further from the truth. And it's also one of the you know biggest leading suspected culprits of a lot of insect population decline. decline you know we're not just talking right. about yeah. bees yeah. we're talking yeah. about entire biomass of insects and. Yeah. I think insecticides, we should be very,
2: very careful about using in, mm. in, any insecticides mm. and, and, uh, as a last resort mm. uh, only. And um, uh, yeah, so it's tricky with villages where mm. um, there's an outside team moving through and maintaining these places, <coughs> uh, maintaining retirement villages. Mm.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's, and I, I don't know, I just think... And the term organic... Um, it, it's just so easy to throw around, isn't it? Mm. It just it doesn't doesn't really seem to. As long as it's a natural product, people can claim mm. that it's organic, mm. and it mm. doesn't organic and safe don't necessarily go hand in hand.
1: But even the safest organic sprays that you could use, you know, they're still blunt instruments. Once once we start talking about stuff like white oil, it's you know it basically works on suffocating pests. Um, it will kill insects that mm. are there that you you know you don't want to kill. Yes. Yeah. Um, so you do have to be, like Jeremy says, you've got to be very careful about when you use them, how you use them. Mm. Um, you want to make sure you're targeting the specific problem insect that you have in your garden yeah. that you've tried everything else to get rid of and you can't. Yeah. Um, and that requires quite a bit of knowledge. You know, it requires the ability to identify what. Insect is causing the problem. Yeah, and and that's that's not easy a lot mm, of the time. Mm, mm, um, it no, requires a, a lot of investigation work. It's one of the reasons
2: why we grow strange roses. We grow <laughs> roses which don't need spraying really. Yeah. Rigoses and and the Rosa Moisy eyes, which I mentioned a while back now. Uh, I mean, we we never sprayed any of those. Mm, mm. Um, mm. We, we just wouldn't try growing Floribundus um, and teas because mm. the conditions in the Danongs are just perfect for. Uh, Insect buildups and uh, and they, they need constant attention. Otherwise, they look the, the plants themselves look dreadful. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we, we okay we won't grow them. We will grow the plants that don't need spraying.
1: Yeah, and that's one of the good responses as well. When when you do find you're trying to grow particular plants and you're getting particular problems. Instead of instead of instead of growing um, instead of growing plants that are going to attract those problem insects, use alternative varieties that are going to be a bit more resilient against those things. Instead of growing those plants and applying applying insecticides and pesticides yeah. in, order, in order to grow them, yeah. um, you know, if if they are getting attacked every year and they are. Struggling? Maybe look for more resilient varieties. It's one of the one of the most simple solutions in a horticulturist arsenal to yeah. to use less pesticides.
0: Yeah, and um, I think just um, even I don't know, take a step back and think: Do I really need to use this uh, pesticide or mm, herbicide? Mm. I, I mean, we were talking a couple of weeks ago about uh, using fungicides on on roses and, and peach leaf curl and things like that. And sure, you might. Uh, um, have success with your the target, but there's a host of other fungi underground yep. that are also going to be affected as well. Yep. Yep, so absolutely. It's, um, yeah, it's a, a, a bit of a tricky situation.
1: And, then, you know, going a bit further on that as well, when you're talking about things like Bordomics that are based on, you know, copper-based sprays for control of um, fungi and that kind of stuff, they can be really antagonistic to earthworms in the soil as well. Once you get, you know, once you apply a spray and you get a bit of a bit of drippage from, from applying the spray and then when it rains it kind of gets to the soil, it can really negatively affect... I know, a lot of earthworm life as well. So, yeah, you know, like we were talking about before, ecology is a very complicated web of interactions mm. and the more the more we discover about it, the more we go, well, we don't really know what we're doing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and the thing is, a lot of And we don't know how things yeah. interact together. Plants yeah.
0: have got perfectly uh, capable mechanisms of looking after themselves, Absolutely. generally. I mean, yeah. especially in the wild. In, in our gardens, of course, it's a completely different matter because mm. it's a uh, different situation and we're trying to get the most out of them. We're trying to... Um, you know, get heaps of veggies or fruit or whatever. But, I mean, if you look at some of the acacias um, in Africa specifically, they, um, when giraffes and antelope are feeding them, they put a feeding on them, um, they start pumping these tannins into their leaves, mm. which makes them unpalatable to the giraffes and the antelopes. So, th- so they move on to other trees. But what they've also found is that um, trees that are nearby um, pick up on the tannins that are being excluded from these acacias that are being attacked, uh-huh. and they start pumping they them start into the it leaves as well. As well. Yeah, so yeah, the right. giraffes, because uh, ecologists watch why giraffes wouldn't go to the next Cops of acacias to feed, mm. and the gi- giraffes know that the acacias do that, so they go to ones that are downwind of these particular, it's or upwind I should say, upwind so that they So the not... giraffes
2: sneak up on trees
1: and yeah. gobble them move on <laughs> the trees, have exactly. a chance to react. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> that's not the most insane thing. So it gives a new, a new you know, definition to the word ambush really, doesn't oh, it? Oh, completely, <laughs> but
0: there's all these incredible interactions, mm. and, and these are the things that so the acacia bushes, they are fed on, but they're not fed on so badly that they'll become extinct and mm. the giraffes still get a feed. So mm. that, it's that whole balance mm. thing, isn't it? Yeah. The
1: plant communication, you know, the emerging research coming out of that is just fascinating. Mm. Um, and Sorry, we've what?
0: Yes, oh, I'm just having a look at our calls to see if we can, uh, let's see if uh, Olive is there. Are you there, Olive? Hi, Olive, are you there? No, nope, Oliver's not there. Um, let's try Pam. Are you there, Pam? Oh, I am here. Hi, Pam. Oh, oh, oh um, thank goodness, we have success on the <laughs> phone. <laughs> oh, is this uh, Pam Britton? No, this is no. This oh. is not Pam Britton.
4: This is Pam Lever from Cointon. Oh, hello. There's a oh, few Pams Pam. in Cointon. I know Pam Britton. Ah,
0: well, there you go. <laughs>
4: um. I was sitting listening and I heard you talk about rugosa roses and then eyes, which I hope I've pronounced correctly, and my ears pricked up because I've had a problem with some rugosas, which are outside my fence line, but sit in a very hard part of the, um, well, they get all the... Weather up from the river, and then they get all the north wind down the road, and they've not done very well. In fact, they've sort of died back quite a lot, which is unusual for rugosas. And I was thinking maybe I should try some other different types of roses. And I love it's the moyer; they're the
5: ones that get the red hips, aren't they?
2: Yeah, the the, the hips are, yeah. uh, are very spectacular, and and uh, they're even edible if uh, for people who want to. Eat mm. rose hips,
4: and they're very well, edible. Probably. Yeah,
2: yeah. When you say they're outside the fence, are they? Uh, is it in amongst grass?
4: No. I I created um, when I came up here. I created a bed, a garden bed there, and I dug lots of. Um, you know, I, thought, I mean, I've been working for eight years on the soil up here. Yes. If you wouldn't ever know it, um, <laughs> but um, where they sit. Is they face? Um, I sit next to the playing fields for the uh, Sacred Heart Secondary College, and so they get a lot of hard weather that comes across there. So frost is a major issue here for me. Well,
2: well they grow them in Canada because they'll <laughs> yeah. take Canadian frost. I, yeah, so, but I think I think here it's a combination
4: of everything that's going on with them because I've got a feeling it's the wet soil. As well. Yeah, well, that's what I'm
2: wondering. Most probably they're grafted, and and it's actually Mm -hmm. the rootstock which is the problem rather than the the Rigosa rose. And I'm just trying to figure out why that could be.
4: They are grafted. They were grafted roses, and I have some down the back of my property which face, which are on the other side of the fence and are more sheltered. And those roses do very well, but they are not grafted. They are on their own
2: rootstock. And they they'd be running furiously, I'm sure. Oh no, nothing they're much not furiously up here. <laughs> <laughs> I have seen them run. Uh, that, that's and they naturally form thickets. <laughs> no,
4: but they are growing well. So they are growing well. But these other ones, I, they grew well to start off with, and they got lovely because my idea was to have a Ragosa hedge to shelter the rest of the garden. And, and I thought roses would be hardy enough for that, but obviously I think I think the wet soil and it's wet heavy soil, despite what I've put in it, um, I think that's sort of gone. And I was wondering how tough the other roses were, the more I know yeah, they are beautiful I, roses. I, right. I
2: suspect you're right about the wet soils. The, the, mm. the, uh, most of the root actually need a free draining soil. Mm. And that's the one factor which they can't mm-hmm. cope with. Mm-hmm. So I'm trying to think if you, if you want to grow roses in a wet soil, just which one you choose. The, the, uh, I, th- I think, uh, the sure. <laughs> I, I shouldn't suggest this, but, uh, well, hesitate to suggest. Um, uh, th- there are one true. or two roses which will grow in <laughs> damp conditions. I, am I think, mm. I think Rosa Virginiana will. Um, I all need right. to check that myself uh, Once I get home and <laughs> check my books uh, There is um, Pelustrus is, uh, is another rose Which um, um, I'm pretty certain Will grow in wet soils But the, the problem is if you, if you simply want to grow Teas*, Floribundas, the David austins the, uh, They're all going to be grafted Onto similar roots yeah. like to the rugosas And I suspect you'll have exactly the same Problem mm. um, so you, you actually need uh, to do some research and and find something happy in your particular soil and use that for your your hedge, I suspect.
0: I think you are Pam's yeah. research, Jeremy. <laughs> 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 At this point, I, I,
2: I've made my library from home and, and, and my list of plants is uh, <laughs> uh, good for specific locations. and I, I can suggest one or two books uh, to, to look up. Grab Stewart Thomas, of course, the great rosarian, he, uh, he did a book on, uh, he, he also uh, wrote books on shrubs and also perennials, and, and he has huge lists of plants for specific locations in his books. Uh, there's uh, uh, the Western Gardening book, the, the Sunset Western Gardening book, in the, uh, the American book, which is absolutely superb. It's an encyclopedia of plants and all listed according to what uh, climate they'll grow in and, and what soils, um, and, and, um, and then with lists of plants for specific locations. And I think that's what you need. So pop along to the library and, and see what they have or order in one of these books.
4: I have already started to extend the planting out to other shrubs, which is probably what I should have done in the first place. But uh, when I heard you
2: speak about those, I thought, oh, he might know something about those roses, I'll ask. <laughs> yeah, I, we, I, I was asked to recommend a hedge for a, um, for a very damp soil site, which was, or rather, very damp in the spring and very, very dry and dusty well, uh, six weeks later, <laughs> which is a, the, the worst possible site. Yeah. And uh, we used a, um, one of the early Agnes. Mm. Um, the uh, are an absolute boon up here. They
4: grow so well. I have two of them in my back garden. They are the best shrubs. They I'm, are beautiful.
2: I'm sitting here trying to think of the species. I um, might. Mm. Well, just have a look.
4: asking me the I can't think what it is either. It's got the lovely, um, like, um, gr- soft greeny leaf with the velvety underneath. It shows the different colour underneath. And yep. they are just. So tough those tr-
2: shrubs They are beautiful shrubs There's a magnificent hedge of Early Agnes hedge at Cruden Farm Beside the <coughs> beach Garden Which is the one I'm trying to think of mm. and, um, and Elizabeth th- Murdoch's old garden
6: um, And
4: there's um, a house here in Crington up near the gym It's, uh, deve- you know, it's been Designed and it's, it's Professionally maintained And they have the best Early Agnes hedge In there, it's just beautiful Mm. people don't use them very much they don't know of them and yet
1: yeah that's true
4: I, yeah I didn't know of them until I came up here and Margot had them in her nursery and I bought them as um, screening plants and they're just fabulous fabulous shrubs Mm. To do anything with them anyway. Maybe I'll have to
1: resort to some more Agnes. <laughs> well, they're always a good fallback. But other, I don't know other p- other plants for that position. Doing a you know doing a hedge around your garden. I I've always loved chionomales for that for that kind yeah, of yeah and and, and always and, extremely uh, tough
2: and exactly right mm. and and that's another shrub we used in this moisture gaining site. Mm. <laughs> I can tell you the six trees the six trees we found which would grow in this site as well. I mean it literally was a site just down below Mount Dandenong. Uh, with water running over the surface for about six weeks every spring right. and mm. by Christmas it was dust. Mm. And, uh, you're down the to... Our soil. Yeah, you're down to taxodiums and, mm. and, uh, uh, Quercus palustris, the, the mm. swamp oak, um uh, medlars, but yes, mm. uh, they, they, they grew beautifully. and... They will form a, a rather handsome hedge. Yeah, they it's do. a thickening plant. They it's hedge a, up beautifully. It's an incredibly tough plant. It's it, of course it flowers in in winter, doesn't it? Uh, it does. Into early first. spring. Yeah, yeah. Yep. And 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 uh, with a rather dramatic flower mm. on bare stems. Mm. So you have a thicket of bare stems uh, uh, full of flower. And so the... which
4: anomalies are you referring to? Because there's so many of them now, and the old common tough one, which was behind our outside toilet in mm. reservoir in our old house, hang on
1: a minute, yeah.
4: it used to be 15 feet tall, 12 feet at least. Um, and, but you can get so many different varieties of them now,
1: can't you? Yeah, absolutely. They come in a quite a vast array of colours. You can get mm. pure, pure whites and really intense reds and burgundies. Um, mm. And whenever I've used them, they're always they're always generally all pretty adaptable and reliable. And um, it's, 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 it's Chionomelis speciosa, mm. and it's a whole series
2: of selections. Mm. Um, some of them very dramatic as the flowering whites, pinks, uh, coral reds. Mm. A very, oh, very tough idea. plant, so they'll tolerate incredible drought, cold, mm. heat, <laughs> anything. And, 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 uh, here. We had a lovely frost yesterday. Yeah, they'll tolerate yeah. frost.
4: Good. Hmm. <laughs> okay. All right. And they do
2: very hedge very quite well, time. too. I, I have seen them hedged into a formal hedge, mm. uh, yes. and they, they can be very effective.
4: I have, too, and they do. They hedge beautifully. mm Okay, we'll
0: give all of that some thought,
4: and I'll go and probably dig out another rose later. Good <laughs> 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 on
0: your path. <laughs> All right, thanks. Okay. For Bye for now. All right, and let's go to Michael in Caulfield. Hi, mm-hmm. Michael.
7: Good morning. Yes, I'm a, a di- wondering about digging out things, too.
0: Mm-hmm.
7: Um, I have some Globe artichokes, and they've uh, come up where there's several where the old one used to be. Mm-hmm and but i wasn't quite sure i know i can split them but i don't know what the best time to split them would be
2: now is this a uh, a seedling grown globe artichoke or a uh, one of the uh, sterile hybrids
7: Ooh. um i don't know it, it's come from the original plant which has been around for a long time i, I you know, it, it splits and it splits and it splits. So we have we started off with one, and we must have uh, nine different uh, plants now.
2: I, I suspect it's one of the sterile forms in that case. If it's if you're splitting a uh, uh, splitting a rootstock, and yeah. they will split quite well, the the uh, fertile ones seed. Uh, it's quite pretty obvious. Oh, well,
7: which wait, they, they never
1: get the seed, We eat right? <laughs> Oh, right, okay. Yep. You because you eat them, of course. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> um, look, dividing them now is is a pretty good time to do it. A lot of them have just come back into really active growth as well. Yes, yeah, so that's what I noticed. Yeah. I wasn't sure yep. what
7: was what was optimal.
1: If yep, like. yeah. Look, I would I would look for look for side shoots and things that look bigger than about 15 centimetres tall and just get in there with a spade and try and get some root off with it and, yeah, Bob's your that's uncle, right. really. Well,
7: they're, they're, they would be around that now, I think, so that's, yep. that's fantastic. Yep. And if I could ask another question, as we were talking about sprays before... Mm-hmm. Is there anything that you can do that that will uh, limit the impact of gall wasp on 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 citrus?
1: Yeah, that's a tricky one. And the last time I was in here a month ago, we had a conversation about this because I've been been trying to uh, establish a citrus hedge in my backyard. It's the first year that it's been in, and I'm in the unenviable position of having to basically cut off all of this season's growth because it was so affected with gall wasp. Um, So I've been on the search for something to try and... You know, keep it at bay as well because I desperately, desperately would love this citrus hedge down the side. Um, okay, and your research
7: suggests what might be useful?
1: Physical exclusion is pretty much the only thing that works. It's like keeping, you know, it's like doing battle with possums. Um, the the only way to really effectively keep them off the plants that you want to that you want to protect is to physically keep them off of there. There's there's no, you know, there are pheromone traps and things that you can get, but they yes. don't seem to be terribly effective. Um, at least, you know, it's not going to... And there's, there's just... There's so much gall wasp in the city now that it's extremely difficult to manage. And it, it does
2: seem to be more of a problem in the in the suburbs. <coughs> it does. The, yes, yeah. yes, yes. That, that's my experience too. Mm. Um, there's my, lots but, of
1: old citrus that's yeah. terribly infected with it and, mm. you know, yeah. it's every second house it seems. And oh, look, I do battle with it in my clients' gardens all the time mm. and it's just it's one of those things where whenever i'm planting citrus for people now i get quite large established established trees mm-hmm. that have been grown without them you know without without pest uh without gall wasp um damage on it to begin with because planting smaller trees and trying to establish them from a young age it's just it's a nightmare mm. um but i do know karen sutherland has mentioned on here before that she she can often remove the gall damage from the stem without cutting the whole stem off. Oh, yeah, I've,
7: I've, I've learned how to do that. <coughs> yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah, so that that would be another weapon in your arsenal, I reckon. But um, when, when
7: you say exclusion, though, I mean, yeah. these things are really small. They're I tiny. Think.
1: Yeah, they're yeah. absolutely so, tiny.
7: What would you use that could possibly exclude
1: them? I'm not even sure that fly screen or something is going to keep them at that's bay, because they, <coughs> they are really, really small, but maybe... Maybe something like muslin is gonna keep them out as well, which is also gonna let a whole lot of light in, but I don't know if that's gonna be small get enough.
0: Extremely <coughs> fine mesh and um basically built for trees. So it comes in a in a um a, a, a Box shape basically, and you create a frame over the tree, and and hang this uh, this very fine mesh exclusion um, thing over it. Um, so that's you know something that you could you could possibly go for, Michael.
7: Mm-hmm. All right. Well, that's. Easy. I was kind of hoping there might be something that. Uh would be uh, easier, but... Uh, and something good. that looks good. <laughs> it's it it thing, huh?
0: Yeah, it's always depressing as well. You, you want a really nice um, veggie garden or produce yeah. garden or whatever, and then you've got nets hanging nets up everywhere. here and things yeah. over there and, yeah, well, things... Well, we already have, have some nets up for possums, so... Oh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's, it's, it's finer, it's finer ones, yeah. <coughs> you, you're well on your way anyway, yeah, yeah. You just have to make
2: a feature of your nets in <laughs> some yeah, way. Yeah, I mean, yeah. It's not completely crazy. Yeah. <laughs> I have, I have said it done, and it's great fun, but...
0: Okay, well, thank you very much. Thanks, Michael. Bye for now. All right, and let's go to uh, Virginia in Coburg. Hi, Virginia. Hello. Thanks for Um, holding on.
5: That's fine. Um, Yes, I too have some digging and spraying problems. Um, I've got a very old nectarine tree, um, and I'm wondering if... I'm thinking of taking it out because I noticed that um, the bark is starting to split and um it's kind of got quite a bit of orange fungi in it and also this year I seem to be inundated with possums and rats and don't seem to be able to get any fruit at all um so yes um if I did take it out and I'm thinking of taking it out and putting some citrus in um if I did take it out what's the best way of taking it out like if I want to plant something else there, do I get the whole, presumably I have to get the whole stump grubbed out. Is that right?
1: Yeah. I would be, prob- look, I would be getting rid of the stump as well after you yeah. cut the tree down because um, it sounds like you've got a bit of gummosis as well, which is going to be persistent if you don't get rid of bits yeah. and pieces there's, potentially. Um, there's
5: not much gummosis. It's mainly the bark splitting and right. orange fungi, which I think, might be just showing that it's pretty old.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, on a, on a nectarine uh, tree, though, Virginia, it also shows that it's pretty sick.
5: Mm-hmm. Yeah, right.
0: Yeah, ha- sorry, I missed how old the tree was.
5: Well, I've I've been in this house for about five years, and I think it was about ten years old when I came. Mm-hmm. Um, and for the first couple of years that I was here, it cropped really well, but in the last couple of years. Although it's had a, a lot of flowers, it hasn't really set much fruit.
0: Sure, have you um, pruned it?
5: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: So you've, you've done done all the right things, basically.
5: Yeah, and I've been trying to, you know, summer prune it, um, and gradually bring its size down. It was huge, mm. but um, now with the possums and the rats, there was a tiny bit of fruit, but it was gnawed and gone when it was completely. The fruit was completely green, so. I just think, oh, it's a waste of time. Um, So, yes, that's what I'm thinking of doing.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's it's a tricky one, especially when you've got a a tree that uh, is still producing. Mm. I think you. I suppose you have to weigh up the pros and cons of it. If if you try and really improve the health of the tree, just assume you're not going to get fruit for a couple of years and really prune it hard and apply um, liquid seaweed and and really try and yeah. uh, get the health and vigor back into the tree before. Well, you...
5: to be honest, I'm a bit over stone fruit. Oh, <laughs> sounds like you've made your own decision. With, <laughs> well, with possums and rats, it's just. I feel like I'm losing the battle completely, mm-hmm. whereas with citrus, it's less maintenance. Mm-hmm. And I found, um, well, my I've got a few citrus in it, and yes, I have wasp problems, but I found with my orange trees, it's far less prevalent. Yeah, yeah. So that's what I'm going for. Um, yeah, but so you suggest just getting the whole stump removed and...
2: Just scrubbed out. Remove the stump. There are other fruit trees. You could think about persimmons, for instance. Mm. Uh, it's a very attractive tree, and the, generally the possums
1: leave those yeah. alone. I've never seen a possum in <laughs> a persimmon.
2: They're having stunningly beautiful trees. <laughs> uh, um, uh, um, their autumn I'll colour be, is brilliant. Yeah. I yeah. love them.
5: I know uh, everyone around me who has persimmon has had to net their trees because of cockies.
1: Because of cockies, right. Those um, gangs of Corellas as well. And Corellas, yeah. Yeah,
5: so um, anyway, the other thing I wanted to know in terms of spray was I do have an apricot tree which I don't want to have to take out but um, I noticed that if I don't spray I just get brown rot And I wondered if there's anything else I could use, you know, to cope with the brown rot.
1: What are you using to spray it as it it happens Um, at the moment? I
5: use that lime sulphur. Right. But just once seems to do okay. But I I really don't like spraying at all.
1: Right. Um, Brown rot's one of those kind of tricky things, really. Mm -hmm. Um, I've got to confess I don't know that much about it. I'm just kind of...
5: Yeah. I mean, you have to do all this tree hygiene, which
1: mm.
5: which I do do, but I still get it.
0: Yeah, and what about the health of your trees, Virginia? How much effort do you put into really improving their health and, and, and overall vigour?
5: Uh, I do do quite a lot, but what's happened this year, and I've, the only thing I can think of is possums, is that something's just been eating all the leaves.
0: Well, that Completely. Th- yeah. Well, that quite possibly is mm-hmm. possums. Mm-hmm.
5: Even the fig trees, are eating. I've never heard anything eating fig leaves, but yes. Yeah, All no. the asphodel trees, um, their leaves have been just chomped.
0: Yeah, very very likely to be possums. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no tricky, uh, but obviously separate issue from your brown rot problem. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah.
5: But so yeah. I do. I mean. It does have good growth, but then
0: suddenly it has no leaves. Mm, okay, yeah, that's that, that, that's that's a tricky one. Yeah, yeah. I think,
2: I think the worst comes to the worst in these instances, and you're struggling to grow anything. It's best just to do a tour of surrounding streets and just figure out what is growing, what is succeeding, mm, despite you know, the. Spot right. the uh, uh, the, the the birds and the rats and the possums, possums. and the uh, and the brown no, rats and, and sooner or later <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> there's, there's going to be something.
5: I mean, the best thing it seems to be around me is citrus. Um, I have talked to all my neighbours about gall wasp, and they've let me go into their backyards and <laughs> chop away the gall wasp. You've got very
1: good neighbours, I'm <laughs> going to say.
5: Yeah. Um. And I mean it's been horrific. Like I've gone into some of my back neighbour's yard and I just couldn't believe it. There was mm. hardly any tree. There was the galls were so huge. Mm. But um so hopefully, you know, if 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 it can get on top of that, citrus might be the way to go. Though I have seen lemons not in my garden but completely skinned by possums. Um but that hasn't happened yet, so that might be something still in store for me.
1: Mm. <laughs> James,
2: have you had an experience with finger limes
1: um, in in the suburbs? There... Um, yeah, they're pretty resilient to um, gall wasp, actually. Oh,
5: my finger lime, yeah. <laughs> no, no, or not? No, no my here? finger lime was fine. It was just a Buddha's hand.
1: Right, ah, that, right.
5: I was surprised that that had some gall wasp. I had to
1: chop off. Well, they are well, they are different. And one of the things that kind of perplexes me about the, the fact that um, the finger limes can be you know pretty resilient to gall wasps yeah. is that it was one of the plants that, that you know because the gall wasp is a native insect.
6: Yeah.
1: And it would have it would have existed on the finger lime at one stage or another exclusively until whiteys came to Australia and started planting exotic citrus, yeah. and that's how they made their way down the eastern seaboard, and that's how that's why they're now in Melbourne because they never used to to be here, mm. um, so considering that that was probably one of the original host plants for the gall wasp, um, I find it a b- pretty remarkable that they're not they're not heavily affected mm. by by it gall might wasp.
5: have Built up with some kind of symbiotic. <coughs> <coughs> relationship. Perhaps,
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Perhaps there's ants involved there. We're yeah, talking about. That, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um,
5: with the nectarine, once I take it out, can I plant straight away, like the citrus?
1: Yeah, look, I, there wouldn't be any problems with, you know, if there's any residual fungi around from, yeah. the, from the gummosis. That's not going to affect your citrus at all. Yeah. So, yeah, okay. look, I wouldn't really worry about that. But, yeah, you know, you sound like you know what you're doing, but get your soil really pumping. And if you want to put citrus in, wait until spring. Yeah, By definitely. God, don't plant it over winter because it really won't like it. No. Um, so, yeah.
5: No, I did plant one in autumn. And I noticed, because it was quite warm for a long time, but, mm-hmm. and I noticed that hasn't done anything, it's just sitting there. <coughs> yeah. So hopefully we'll do something in spring.
1: Look, they are very warm climate things, um, so I I would always I would always advise never really plant citrus any later than kind of even the, even the middle of summer or something like that yeah, because they yeah. do they do like to get their roots out into a run really, really quickly to establish well and healthily. Yeah. Um, so putting them in the ground any later than that, you kind of put them at risk of um, kind of languishing in the ground for six months before they actually hit hit their straps and grow like yeah, the clappers. Yes, so I
5: hope it, it does hit its straps. <coughs> <okay. laughs> i will have to yep. wait and see. Well, good okay. luck with
1: all your crew it is by the sounds of it <laughs> well people
5: I know have had luck with electric <coughs>
1: Right.
5: I, I don't that seems to be the only effective thing yeah
1: right? physical exclusion like I said before mm. is really mm. the only thing yeah. that I know of that works yeah.
0: yeah and a dog I guess
1: well I've got a dog <laughs> and she's she, hopeless she so,
6: yeah.
0: <laughs> all, right, Virginia. all right thank you bye 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 for now we have had a couple of callers to the outside line and Mita from uh, Phillip Island is looking for... Um Offshoots for the variegated Yucca Ivory Towers. Um, she's happy to pick up. If anybody has um, some that they'd be happy to donate to Mita, um, you can ring our outside line, which is 94198377, and uh, give your number, obviously, off air, and um, Mita would um, like to come and pick them up. Otherwise, I, I think there's a couple of nurseries that stock, maybe even Lamley's. Um, stock them, I'm but not sure. uh, yeah, I just did a quick Google on right. um, ivory ivory towers, and um, yeah, it came up in a, in a couple of spots. So, um, Mitty you might have luck um, with a couple of um, nurseries. Uh, Michael from Forest Hill rang to say he's had success wrapping gall wasp lumps in Glad Wrap, and uh, that um, insecticide info in uh, is is also available from the Department of Primary Industries. Um, who obviously would, yeah, are keen to control the problem. I haven't heard of hmm. wrapping gall in Glad wrap in because glad wrap. But by then it's it's in and, it's already and there. done. Yeah. So what would that so, do? Uh,
1: would it cook it or Suffocate it Yeah, maybe? yeah. I wonder what. Yeah, mm, I'd like to, to know more about that.
0: Yes, yes. So Michael, if you've got more information on wrapping your gall wasp lumps in Glad wrap, yeah, let us know. All right. Well, we should go to uh, Lee from Merricks. Hi, Lee. Good morning, panel. Thank you for the opportunity. Oh, thanks for holding. Uh,
8: Your previous caller mentioned plants coming into their straps. Well, I've got a a patch of cannas, the the nice dark one with the the coral flower that's been there for years and years and years, barely sort of coping. Um, But in the last year or so, it's suddenly hit its straps and it's taking up more than its allotted space. Right. And I've never really done anything about it because it wasn't looking all that enthusiastic. <laughs> so I've now got sort of warby-looking old stems and new, vigorous new stems. And what are the protocols for canna? I don't know. Well, should I be cutting them back every year? Or it's clearly spreading and I'm almost out of its allotted space.
2: I used to be working in the Royal Botanic Gardens right next to the gentleman who maintained the canner beds. <laughs> and those beds were dug every winter. Yeah. And uh, the vigorous side shoots uh, removed and, and replanted and most of the clumps thrown away. Mm. <laughs> well, mulched, I expect. Mm. Mm. They do uh, make good so mulch, actually. Yeah. So he, it was a very spectacular canner bed done in the, in the in the old-fashioned way, and, and not something they do nowadays. <laughs> <laughs> but it was—it was, uh, it was uh, put on a tremendous show for months every. Summer. It was, it was a fairly high maintenance bed. Mm. Ah, so, so that's, that's if you... i not a
8: high maintenance
2: person. <laughs> 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 yeah. Um, otherwise, yeah, it's it it's certainly it, like it, it would, would be worthwhile digging the clump and, and mm. removing the centre of the clump. Mm. And uh, we, we have clumps of cannas. They're, they're great fun and we dig ours once every three or four years rather than every season. Ah, at Is what time of the year would you dig them? Oh, uh, now mm-hmm. uh, Through uh, Generally, uh, we actually work on Our soils in the spring We'd like to make sure the soils are dry uh, So dry periods in the spring uh, We've just had rain And we're keeping right off our soils At the moment um, But it depends on where you are If you have sandy soil you can do it now But otherwise um, wait till um, August, September uh, uh, but so, but we, we chop back now We will be chopping back starting tomorrow morning
8: Right <laughs> There you go Okay, so we're having dug them up I then sort of save the uh, good, healthy, strong yep. bits And throw away the rest, do I? Yes, yep, yep. No, that, like, You'll, you'll, only,
2: you, you'll uh, only need uh, three or four pieces <coughs> And you'll have 50 or 60 most probably
8: Okay, righto. Thank you very much for your
0: assistance. <laughs> Good on you, Lee. Thank you. Bye, Bye for now. Yes, that's my um, old thing: high maintenance garden, <laughs> low maintenance <laughs> garden. I really like that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, Jeremy, do you cut them down to the ground?
2: Oh yes. Uh, well, yeah. to, uh, just, uh, just a few just, inches. Yeah. yeah Hundred mil or so. Yeah. I think it's Wyoming, isn't it? The old orange one with the purple foliage. I think I've it got is. No yeah.
6: Idea.
0: Yeah. yeah. No, I haven't had any. Um, any experience with them in Australia and South Africa, we had a lot in the garden, and mm. I spent many an hour pulling the flowers apart as a kid, so that's my experience with, um, with cannas. Yeah, there's some big
2: collections of them around. There's uh, a gentleman in Queensland with, with two or three hundred. Mm. <laughs> different canners. Yeah. That would be a bit of work. He's in his 80s too. Oh, geez.
6: Cool. <laughs> Keeps him young, I'm sure.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, you are listening to the 3CR Gardening Show. I'm A.B. Bishop, and with me in the studio <coughs> are Jeremy Francis from Cloud Hill and James Beatty. If you'd like to ask us, a, ask us a question or got a gardening comment, give us a call on 94190155 or if you would like to talk to Robin and Virginia on the outside line, um, call nine four one nine eight three double seven. Now, um, Jeremy, earlier you. Um Started reading me something, and you said you had something interesting that you wanted to Oh sort of right, okay. And it, it <laughs> oh, sounded quite I intriguing, found, I and found, I thought I found a a, uh, Yeah.
2: <laughs> uh, now this is needs a tiny bit of explanation, but it's probably one of the most uh, well, the most famous of the Arts and Crafts gardens in England. One of the, the jewels in the crown of the English National Trust gardens, and, then, and the English National Trust have about whew, 150, 250 uh, gardens, but Sissinghurst in Kent. Um, is is um, just outstanding, made by Harold Nicholson and Vita Sackville-West in the um, 30s through to the 50s, and made around a um, an old um, Tudor manor house uh, which was torn apart uh, 200 years ago, and and just the walls and one or two towers left standing, and so an absolute ideal framework for a garden and um and Veda Sackville-West and Harold Nicholson were both writers they both uh, wrote uh, uh, books on various subject, subjects. Uh, Veda Sackville-West was actually a poet and won the Hawthornden Prize at one point for her poem The Land. Uh, she also wrote a a long, epic poem on gardening. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it goes on for about 50 pages, which is uh, so you're great fun to read. You've got 14 but I, minutes. <laughs> but I, I found a letter. Uh, they started on their garden in 1931, and um, 1932, I think it was, and, and I found a letter and some letters that were published, written by um, Harold Nicholson to Vita Sackville-West, now, Harold Nicholson, I might add, was also a politician. He uh, won a seat in the House of uh, Commons and he was a junior cabinet minister under Churchill in the Second World War. So, extraordinary people. Mm-hmm. And the garden is absolutely breathtaking, an extraordinary garden. Um, but uh, in uh, 1937... Um, well, the garden was only five years old, a fairly raw one would think, and as a thank you, as a thank you to his electorate, he had a coachload of people drive down from Leicestershire to Kent and walk around the garden. I think it was the first time anyone had actually seen this garden, and uh, so this letter was a thank you from Harold Nicholson to Vita Sackville West. I might also add that Harold Nicholson actually designed the garden, and Vita Sackville West was the plants person, she was brilliant. They were both brilliant in their way. Uh, but you need to know that. But anyway, there's a little, this is a, little, <coughs> uh, this is a, uh, a little letter that I discovered, uh, tucked away. Anyway, anyhow, never has Sissinghurst looked more lovely or been more appreciated. I must say, Farley, the head gardener, has made the place look like a gentleman's garden. And you, with your extraordinary taste, have made it look like nobody's garden but your own. I think the secret of your gardening is is simply that you have the courage to abolish ugly or unsuccessful flowers. Except for those beastly red-hot pokers, which you have a weakness for. There is not an (laughs) ugly flower in the whole place. Then I think that the the design is really rather good. I mean, we have got what we wanted. A perfect proportion between the classic and and the romantic, between the elements of expectation and the element of surprise. Thus the main axes axes are terminated in a way to satisfy expectation, yet they in themselves are so tricky that they also cause surprise. (laughs) I was absolutely intrigued by this because (laughs) I think it's the first... I think Harold Nicholson coined the expression... Uh, the term expectation and surprising gardens, which I must admit I use all the time myself, and I, I knew that it went back to Harold Nicholson, but I think it's he coined it in this letter yeah. in 1937, and it's a, just a, a really good theme for anyone designing a garden. Um, uh, just keep that in mind, and uh, there's several other things about this that this letter too, which are, which are rather interesting. A gentleman's garden. I think that was said tongue in cheek because a gentleman's garden was an 18th century garden, which was an entirely different thing. It's park-like more than anything. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Maybe uh, they uh, were teasing uh, it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think I think it was a joke uh, because it, it meant something very specific. It was mm. the garden that Capability Brown was making in the mid uh, 18th century. So yeah. it was a park-like garden. I mean, it was a uh, park garden if you like. Mm. It was the the uh, You know, there's two great schools of English gardening: the the, uh, 18th-century garden, the the informal garden, the genre, the the jardin anglais um, that the French uh, Mm. referred to, uh, and uh, the gardens that Capability Brown was making. Capability Brown, of course, I think it was his 300th birthday uh, a couple of years ago. Mm. So to get an idea, we were talking 1730. (laughs) <laughs> in a sense Yeah, well he's still garden here <laughs> 1733 to about 1760 he was busy And he was extraordinarily busy because he made about 270 gardens He started at Stowe, very famous 18th century garden at Stowe mm. and one, of the, 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 one of the two or three earliest of them if you, There was an article in Country Life adding together the acreages that he worked on It came to nearly half a million acres. And no other landscaper in the history of landscaping has come close Mm. to the work that he has done. And he actually changed the face of England. Mm. Now that's, I'm going on about this a little bit because the the, the extraordinary thing for Australians is that when Whitey's (laughs) first came to Australia, everyone said that the Australian landscape looked like a gentleman's gentleman's garden. Mm that was aboriginal traditional owner mosaic burning mm. it created this this landscape of 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 uh, of uh, grasslands intermingled through shrublands and and trees sometimes trees growing in rows <laughs> and it looked like now the best example of a gentleman's garden of an english landscape garden the 18th century style outside england in the world is the Royal Botanic Gardens in Melbourne. So anyone in Melbourne who's walked through the Royal Botanic Gardens, keep in mind that all of Australia looked something like that in the old days, talking predisposition. And uh, so there's, there's a lot of themes in this tiny little bit of writing, I feel,
0: the content. I just like the letter itself. I, I think we should um, bring in a uh, national letter writing day and we all pick one gardener friend whose garden <laughs> we really appreciate and we write them a long letter, something along those lines of, of how we appreciate it and, and, and the things that maybe they should change. Mm. Yeah.
2: The loss, if if lost art of correspondence. That's right. Really, <laughs> I, 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 I might <laughs> add that if you go to Sissinghurst today you can walk, walk around the cottage garden in particular which is a section of the, gar- of the yeah. overall garden. It's all broken up into garden rooms of course and the cottage garden sits right next to this, this fragment of the old Tudor cottage and it's full of, of plants in sunset colours so quite warm colours, pinks oranges, reds <coughs> and it's full of red hot pokers <laughs> <laughs> She won the argument. There's, there's a lot to be said for them,
0: that's for sure. Alright, let's get to a couple more callers. Let's go to uh, Louie in Mitcham. Hi Louie. It's Lois, actually. Lois, hi, Lois. No,
8: but I don't mind <laughs> Sorry about being called that. Louis. It depends on your nationality. <laughs> <methodology. laughs> um, yes, I'm just wanting to follow up on a pe- uh, question that Pam from Coynton asked. And you did mention before the flowering quinces, the chamelais, that um, there was another one, and it sounded like it started with A, and I couldn't quite catch it. Jeremy.
2: I- Iliagmus. Ellie Agnes, Ellie. it starts with an E oh, Ellie, that's yeah, my, my horrible that funny, mangling of the English the language
8: book And I saw, uh, and it was an E and I wondered whether I'd made a mistake Now would you please spell it?
2: Um, E-L E-L
8: A Yes
2: L-E. No, E-L-E E-L-E, yes
8: a- a- G-
2: yeah. But I hmm. need to write this down as I go. And I'm, it's I'm, a tricky one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's
8: like a lanus, isn't it? Yes. Uh, they're,
2: uh, yeah, they're, they're tough plants and they're all quite interesting. There's one or two sucker. There's one called Macrophala uh, uh, with. With large uh, silvery leaves, which uh, doesn't sucker, and I've used that for a hedge in difficult circumstances, and it's good for a hedge from about one metre to about two meters, oh. which is silvery, um, yes, sort of a gray silver done. color, uh, and, and it this? flowers, and, and that one flowers with a, a flower which is not obvious, but it's uh, perfumed of honey.
8: That mm. cool.
2: So they're, they're a nice group of plants.
8: Good. And and um, that particular one is that available readily to? Um,
2: them? you need to hunt it down a little bit. But yes. if you if you uh, go to your nursery and ask, uh, yes. they, they they should be able to obtain it for
8: you. Yes. I, I was also wondering whether Pam has considered with the rugoses, et etc that she just takes a lot of cuttings and gets them growing on their own rootstock so that um, the water or the dry weather doesn't affect them. But, I mean, dry weather is supposed to be quite all right for rugosa.
2: Yes. Um, yeah, well, most roses are happy in dry conditions. Yes, There's not too many be. that are happy in, in wet conditions.
8: No, no, that's right. In fact, I've, you know, had a few plants that are probably... Oh, not a few, a couple um, of roses that tend to, if they do get wet, they do get knocked. Um, yes, they become
2: vulnerable to other right. things. That's yep.
8: right, Jeremy. Well, look, thank you for that spelling and uh, uh, thank you all for the program.
0: Good on you, Lois. Thank you very much. Okay. Bye, bye for then. now. Bye. bye. Uh, one of our... Um, Regular panelists who comes in is uh, Chloe Foster, and Chloe Foster is obviously listening to the show, and very cunningly, she <coughs> has uh, sent in a uh, photo of a plant that she needs identified, and um, one that she uh, noticed uh, growing down at uh, her local creek. I think it is, yeah. and, and uh, <coughs> you know the answer. It's to one that. you always get inquiries about this yeah. time of
1: year. Um, it's the osage orange, Maclura pomifera. Ah, um, okay. <clears throat> but down in the local creek line, it's,
0: oh, it was, uh, um, it's a bit of a worry. Yes, growing along Darabin Creek. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, so but
1: an interesting plant. It's one of those, you know, it's kind of been in cultivation for quite a while, but not yeah. definitely not for its edible okay. fruit. The fruit it's, is edible, but it's yeah. just not.
2: Yeah, know. there's famous uh, plants of it around Bacchus Marsh, mm. which one or two of them <laughs> I think are actually uh, classified by the National Trust. Uh, the, the the other interesting thing about it is the wood is incredibly elastic and, yeah. and it's good for making. Bows or fishing rods. Fly fishing rods. I've seen a fly fishing rod made out of Osage orange. Okay. Which is incredible. <laughs> right. Uh, it comes from the Great Plains of of America.
1: Mm. And despite its common name, it's not actually in the Rutaceae. No, yeah. No, I think it's, no, a it's not, enormous, not, not, it? not a citrus. It's more uh, it? yeah, it just has
2: a rather Ma- strange fruit which looks
1: vaguely like an orange. More related to mulberries than, yep. yeah, than citrus.
0: Yeah. Oh yeah. Do they ever change colour?
1: No, it was kind of brainy, warty yeah. fruit, and yeah. yeah, and just generally pulpy and sappy, and eat, yeah, no. not not inedible, but not commonly eaten. I think that's way yeah, to describe yeah. it. Never <laughs> <laughs> yeah. occurred to me <laughs> to try it. It was one of the Royal Botanic gardens. I so yeah. they, they don't look edible at all." But it is one that always gets piques people's curiosity when yeah, they see them, especially the I can the see fruit. Well, I've never yeah. seen it
0: before. If mm. you Google it, it's uh, quite a bizarre looking fruit. Mm. All right, well, we should go uh, probably to our last caller, uh, Jill from Mil- Melbourne. Hi, Jill.
9: Hello. Um, hi, Jeremy. Um, I've got a Brugmansia uh, that's in flower at last, you know, after we've had some rain. And um, it's very w- big and very woody. Now, I've taken a few cuttings, which I've managed to grow. Um, when I, After it's finished flowering, if I cut it back, you know, in spring, will it shoot again i mean when i've cut off other branches small branches no nothing's grown in that spot so it doesn't seem to regenerate with pruning it's almost as though it's (laughs) anti-pruning it doesn't like being pruned
2: the, 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 well, uh, well, my experience, my limited experience with brooksmania is, yeah. I've, I've, uh, they prune them in the spring if you, if you haven't, and, yeah. and and uh, just gentle pruning and. Um, oh,
9: okay. Yeah. Oh, well, I'll do it then. Well, yeah. it's in flower now. Yeah, but at last, you know, usually it's in flower in autumn and in spring. Or well, yep. mine is anyway. It's a pale, pale um, pink that. Sort of goes to a sort of apricot as the, as the flower ages. Very yep. pretty. Okay, well, thank you. And uh, oh, I was given um, some, Are oh, you talking about the red, uh, the, um, oh, Cl- no, not the Clive, the. Cannas. Cannas. And I was, my neighbour was selling the house, and they had to have new flowers every day, or every second day, you know, in case the Clive <laughs> saw the same flowers twice. <laughs> Uh, who was, you know, visiting twice. Anyway, she gave me this um, beautiful It's sort of purpley, crimson-coloured leaves, and in the vase, it's now leaves, of uh, roots, so I'm uh, going to plant it. Yep, they're, they're pretty Just, tough plants. Yes, yeah, amazing. Okay, uh, well, I'm really thrilled to have <coughs> been given a free plant that would have cost me quite a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Congratulations.
2: Yes, thank
0: you. Okay. Oh, good on you, Joe.
9: Oh, can I just say the Herb Society's website for people who are sure, interested? Sure, very quickly. Herbsocietyvic.org.au.
0: Awesome. Good on you, Jill. Thank you. Thank Bye. You. Bye for now. Well, that is all we've got time for this morning. I can't believe we got to the end of the show. I'd like to thank James Beattie and uh, Jeremy Francis very much for coming in. Um, thank you to Robin, Rosemary and Virginia for warming the phones and thank you to you, the listeners, for tuning in to the 3CR Gardening Show. My name is Ab Bishop and I'm sure Pam will be back with you next week. <laughs> You've been listening to a 3CR podcast
5: produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.